Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome to this latest in our series of IEA In Conversations with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. And it's my great pleasure to welcome back a, a very good friend of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Right Honourable Sir John Redwood. Uh, John has been a Member of Parliament since 1987 for the constituency of Wokingham, my hometown. And in his political career spanning over 35 years, he's held many positions, including the Secretary of State for Wales in John Major's Cabinet, Shadow Secretary of State for both Business and the Environment, he was also uh, head of Margaret Thatcher's policy unit, where he was one of the greatest supporters of widespread privatisation, and it would be no exaggeration to say one of the architects and engineers of the Thatcher revolution. Today we're going to be discussing, amongst other things, the subjects of John's book, Build Back Green, the Electrifying Shock of the Green Revolution, to work out what we should be doing with regard to the environment and energy policy. From the back cover of this uh, book, which I commend to you, and we'll put in the show notes below how you can secure a copy from Amazon, John suggests that all successful revolutions start from the bottom up, and that people will readily adapt green technologies and products once and only if they begin to make their lives easier. So John, wonderful to have you back at the IEA with us. Thanks very much indeed um, for joining us. So I greatly enjoyed the, the, this read, and I just sort of want to take our viewers through it step by step. And I want to begin, because you do mention it, and, and I, I welcome your advice on how to tackle it, the science around climate change, an area that you uh, devote a couple of pages to. And we at the IEA always say, well, we're the Institute of Economic Affairs, not the Institute of Climatological Affairs. So we'll, we'll sort of take what we're given. Um, but a lot of people assert the science is settled. And a lot of others say, well, maybe not as settled as you think. Uh, is your take that the science that's been settled is that everybody agrees that greenhouse gases could warm the environment, but beyond that, there's much too much specificity about exactly what that might mean for global temperatures in five years' time or 105 years' time? Well, I decided not to get involved in, in the scientific argument because I'm not a scientist, and a lot of scientists in good positions in universities do have a consensus not only over how they model the climate, but also over what they think the policy implications of that are. And as someone who spent much more of my time studying economics and public policy, I wanted to engage with the public policy economic side of the argument, as your institute does, and not get embroiled in the scientific arguments. All I said on the science is I think we all accept that carbon dioxide and methane are um, warming gases, they are greenhouse gases, and that if everything else stays the same, then an increase in man-made warm, warming gases would obviously warm the planet. But it's up to the scientists to debate how they model the incredibly complex system of the global climate, how they measure global climate, uh, how they are precise about the actual changes they're perceiving, and then they will be judged by their forecast. But th this book isn't about that. No, that no. That's another piece of work somebody else to do. I'm taking it as given because the governments all take it as given that we wish to cut back very dramatically on man-made CO2 by 2050 
And I'm asking, well, how could you do that? What is a remotely and, sane way of doing it? And how could you yeah. do it in a way which made lives better, which is what yeah. I'm in the business of doing. And, and the, the main message of the book, as you've already explained, is that if they don't find popular products to implement the electric revolution, it's not going to happen. Sure. So we need to work away with the technologists and the industrialists to find those products that can bring about the ideal. So I, I want to come to some of your analysis, prescriptions, strategy around decarbonisation. I don't want to spend too long on the science at all, but you also make reference, which I found quite interesting, into a need perhaps not to be sceptical about modelling, but to forever question it and hone it and adapt it. Uh, you do make reference that it wasn't too long ago we were worried about a new ice age and we sort of segued almost seamlessly into worrying that the world's going to get too hot and too warm. Whose job is it to do that? Will that happen in academies and universities, or does the Secretary of State for Climate Change need to really get a grip on this and hold the modellers to account? Of course, modelling throughout the COVID pandemic had similar scepticism around it. How can you be this precise? What have we learned? Why were your models wrong? What do you think needs to be done so we're permanently uh, adapting, you know, reanalyzing, recalibrating what we think the truth is? Well, I think governments must do this because it is governments that are driving this top-down revolution at the moment and they're doing it uh, they say on the basis of very good scientific advice and the the nub of the scientific advice is to build a client model uh, a climate model and then to say by 2030 and by 2050 the following is going to happen to average temperatures uh, however they may define that and of course any government minister signing off on very big and very expensive programs of change needs to satisfy themselves those are the best possible models. Again, I'm not critical of their models. I haven't studied their models sufficiently uh, to be able to criticise them. But someone who studies economic models all the time, uh, I certainly am very critical of the UK Treasury OBR model and very critical of the Bank of England model because they don't seem to predict the economy even over sh quite short periods of time mm -hmm. very well. And I have some thoughts as to why that is. So it's another piece of work for people who are specialists in, in climate science to make sure that those models are really good and to reassure us all uh, that they are forecasting accurately. And you also suggest there's a, there's a problem perhaps in measurements at the moment, that not all sides agree how to measure things. This might be a great generalisation, but if we were to have an argument or there were to be an argument uh, across the chamber in the Houses of Parliament about uh, the present GDP figures, uh, you would probably be in agreement with those on the other side of the aisle about what those GDP figures were. Whereas actually in the climate debate, there seems to be, we haven't really nailed how to measure average global temperatures. I think you make specific reference that there might be uh, a particular outlier year in California where there's an outlier year in the other direction in Northern Europe. Do you think anything can be done to get to a sort of set of numbers or measurements that all sides can agree on as being objective and then take public policy from there? Because we're not even there yet, are we? Well, I hope so. But again, it's not something I've studied, not something I've written about. What, what I am now studying and writing a bit about is carbon accounting. And I think we have some really big issues there. Uh, there are both um, duration issues over what time period do you measure the carbon uh, because if you decide to go off and make an investment in an electric car and you get rid of and scrap an old diesel car you would think that would reduce your carbon footprint but of course it doesn't unless you drive the electric vehicle for long enough over enough miles to offset the fact that you've had a very big carbon contribution from both making the electric vehicle in the first place and from destroying 
the diesel vehicle. So you, you need to have capital accounting as well as revenue accounting, <laughs> if you like, and you've got to decide over what time period you judge that something has actually reduced carbon dioxide. So it's not that simple. An even bigger accounting issue, which I think is really fundamental to the argument we're now having about nas national resilience and how much of our own uh, capacity we need, uh, is the, the way in which under the international system, uh, if you produce your own steel, all the carbon dioxide in making the steel is to your account and, and you are wicked. And if you import the steel... From that's, China, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's China's problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you apparently are uh, perfectly clean on that. And I, I don't think that's quite right. And I think there are quite a lot of um, green experts who say, no, you also need to account for the carbon content in the imports mm -hmm. that you're bringing in. Uh, and understand that in part that's your footprint, mm -hmm. because if you didn't generate that demand, then that uh, CO2 wouldn't be generated. Also, if a particular country like Britain uh, decides to go over to the model of importing many of the things with a very high carbon content, you will probably increase the world's carbon dioxide output because you may well be importing from countries that aren't as good as you were at controlling carbon dioxide in, in the investment in the manufacturing process, but you'll certainly generate more CO2 bringing the products in. Yep because you've got all that transport CO2. So uh, I, I was really interested what you wrote about, uh, I think you call it full life, full life carbon accounting, mm. because it does seem, at least on the, on the cursory uh, glance of public debate, that we only look at the annual outputs. I mean, mm. I think one case made for HS2, I mean, not that I'm persuaded by HS2 at all, was, well, this will be greener on a perhaps, but the construction costs of it surely are not. And until huge. we... I mean, yeah. It's a very big CO2 footprint for the decade you're building it. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I was actually one of those who voted against it mm -hmm. because I thought it was a very bad investment. Uh, and I think it's looking a worse investment by the day because obviously I and others didn't forecast COVID, but I think COVID has now made a uh, a big interruption in our patterns yep. and use of rail travel, which makes it an even more difficult investment to remunerate. Um, yeah, so that, uh, and it, but again, we seem miles away from this yet, aren't we? I mean, the, the, it's not obvious for me that the Department of the Environment, here or anywhere else, is putting out figures such that it's easy to derive what public policy decisions one would make if decarbonisation was the goal. Well, no, and it's, I think it's something you have to do globally. I mean, this, this is a global problem yep. as posed. And so it doesn't help if we cut our carbon dioxide uh, output, but at the expense of more carbon dioxide somewhere else. Uh, and one of the ways, as you know, they're thinking about dealing with this problem is to recognise the carbon dioxide output in the production of a good at the border where you import it mm -hmm. and say, well, mm -hmm. there must be a, a carbon levy on the product mm -hmm. coming in mm -hmm. uh, to ensure fair competition with the product in, in the UK or in the EU that pays a carbon levy uh, in the form of the, the carbon price if it were manufactured here. So I can see the case for that. But again, it's something you've got to do multilaterally. Yep. It's very difficult to do unilaterally. Net zero is, is of course, the, the British government's uh, commitment, legally binding commitment. I'd be interested if you could explain to me exactly what that means. I thought most legislation that was passed through Parliament was legally binding, uh, indeed all of it. Um, but I, I shudder a bit, because rather like you and the approach you take in, in this book, I accept this is a challenge, I'm, I'm not a denier, I'm happy to believe the mainstream science, but it seems to me that although decarbonisation might be a good idea in general, being absolutely specific about the number of CO2 particles emitted in the UK on the 1st of January at one minute past midnight in 2050 mm. does seem to me a sort of rather over-specific way of tackling the problem rather than saying, you know, we need to decarbonise over a generation or two. 
Well, indeed, I'm, I'm very suspicious of all this legislation which imposes requirements on governments but cannot really impose penalties on them. I mean, who would pay the penalty were there to be a penalty in the climate change legislation? Would it be the poor ministers who take over in 2049? And you're not going to have much chance prosecuting the ministers in 2010 who didn't do enough. Yeah, yeah. And many of them will no longer be with us or, yeah. or will be well retired. So, uh, and of course the legislation doesn't specify penalties. And so this is, it's really legislation by way of aspiration and it's politicians saying, uh, this is an aspiration, but it's such an important aspiration, we wish to embody it in legislation. I, I myself didn't vote for the climate change legislation because I, I felt it had all those kind of issues with it. And I think it was a strong press release and white paper, um, a commitment by a given government, which the opposition was also going to buy into so that it, it was going to be policy w which was going to continue whatever a general election result in all probability. Uh, but they've decided to do it this way. Uh, but it is, of course, unenforceable. Uh, but I'm sure all those people who bought into it are very serious about it. <laughs> I want to move on to the to, to the core of your argument: the kind of that it needs to be bottom up, that these changes need to go with the grain of consumer demand, and you you almost chapter by chapter look at a number of the solutions and are are questioning about them, not hostile, sceptical in, in in exactly the right way. You 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 outline the potential upsides, but let's just go through some of those in. And um, look at whether you think these things are part of the solution or are just some sort of dirigiste approach to decarbonisation. Electric cars. This seems to be uh, from government pronouncements where they think the real breakthrough could make. We're going to phase out all of the old cars by 2030. Uh, we're going to force people into buying these new things. Uh, what's your assessment of how likely to work that is? What are the downsides or the problems that make the policy here um, oversimplistic in trying to achieve that aim? Well, I think you're going to have a lot of people uh, who can't afford an electric car or don't like an electric car or don't want to be instructed into what kind of car they're going to have to have. And there'll be lots of other people who uh, want to do the decent thing by net zero and, and who may find attractive propositions in the electric cars as they evolve. I think they've got to evolve further. Um, clearly at the moment there's a lot of range anxiety. People would like to know that the, the battery would, would get them there and back on a long journey. And quite a lot of people say, well, why do they want that? Because they don't do long journeys very often, but they want the freedom <laughs> to be able to do a long journey if they have to. Some member of the family in a very distant place they don't see very often could suddenly fall ill and they want to know they can get there overnight in a hurry without a problem over refuelling. Uh, they just want the comfort because th that is the joy of the car. It is our personal freedom. It's very important <laughs> to a lot of people. It is that right to go places, meet people, get to work, whatever you do any day. And it has that huge flexibility. It's always sitting there for you near your home, ready to go in, in a way that public transport can't. So uh, you've got range anxiety. Uh, you've, you've then got um, cost of purchase where they're still uh, usually quite a lot dearer than the diesel or petrol alternative and a lot of people don't want to pay the extra, a lot of people can't afford to pay the extra so there has to be a revolution in getting them to a more economic price. And then I think people want more reassurance about battery life and what the impact of fast charging is going to be. And then of course people want a much more universal charging network. And one of the big problems is that if you're a rich person um, living in a city with low mileage or you're a rich person living in, in a house which has a driveway and 
a garage which is easily adapted to put in an overnight charger. Uh, these things can be very convenient. But if you're living in a terrace house with street parking, uh, until the whole street is wired mm -hmm. up and, and there's access to recharging in a safe and accessible way, uh, how do you recharge? And if you're going to recharge at the, the limited number so far of garages that have the charges, are you going to be unlucky the day you go there? Is there a queue for it? How long does it take to get the car in front of you up to a reasonable charge level? It's not like waiting a couple of minutes for somebody to fill up the pumps and move on. So I think all those things have got to come together to get people interested. But let me make a more general point, if I may, the sort of higher level argument in the book, because I do compare the digital revolution with to the, the putative green revolution. With the green revolution. And the digital revolution is largely a bottom-up revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a group of free enterprise companies and innovators that came along with smartphones and laptops and internet connections and social media ideas, ways of using this phenomenal computing power that they could put into the hands and the <coughs> purses and pockets of everybody. Uh, and the public wanted them. And some of them quite expensive, mm -hmm. particularly in the early days. But the public said, no, I, I really want that. I, I want a, a phone I can use when I'm out and about. And oh, I'd like to be able to book a restaurant. And I would like to have a map to see where I am. And I would like to hail a taxi with it. Yep. So uh, it, the smartphone became a, a must-have aid. And, and then the, the laptop or the home computer became very necessary, because then you could download entertainment. You could link it into the television. You could uh, widen your, your social approaches by remote communication. And of course, you could do online shopping. Yep. So the digital revolution just swept people along, mainly through colossal American corporations that were incredibly good and very successful. So Apple worked out what kind of product and what kind of smartphone and laptop uh, people would want and pad. Uh, and Amazon worked out how people wanted to do on online shopping, and Microsoft worked out how to provide all the software. That Netflix has revolutionised home entertainment. Yeah, that's yep. Indeed. So, uh, and it just took off, and it didn't need subsidy, it didn't need particular laws. The laws came later to deal with possible abuses or difficulties, but they weren't needed to promote the products, and didn't need tax incentives, it just took off. Whereas the Green Revolution is still at the stage where Practically all these products need subsidy, they need legal intervention, they need bans on the alternative product, uh, they need all kinds of government intervention. And it's still quite difficult to get them to take off. Indeed, of course, there are a lot of freedom-loving people who become more suspicious yeah. the more the government intervenes. I mean, one, one example which I think is, is fascinating about how difficult this is for, for governments is in the United Kingdom where we're all encouraged to have a smart meter in our home for electricity, and we're told this has all sorts of advantages in managing our bills. Um, and it's offered free, and half the public refuse to have them so right, far. Yeah. And there have been several years of trying to get them to take them up. So it does show that you've got to have a product that people really want, and somehow the architecture of some of these green products still isn't right. So I, I want to play devil's advocate a bit and take you to task on your underlying theory, because I agree with that. The digital revolution has been bottom-up. Mm. Entrepreneurs that might end up being uh, enormous uh, US corporations, but often have started with a couple of teenagers playing around in their garage with an idea right, that then emerges yeah. into it. Yeah. Uh, and you also mentioned sort of, you know, Henry Ford and how the, the motor car replaced mm. the horse. Obviously extremely expensive initially, yeah. but mm. everybody wanted to adopt it and cheaper models come to market. Yeah. First adoption might be expensive, but uh, it's rolled out more universally. But here's the difference, surely, right, is that the, the problem with decarbonisation 
is that nobody individually wants it or yearns for it. It's another regarding activity. I mean, I want to be able to be driven around as fast as possible, as cheap as possible. I want the best movies on my television. Uh, I want a small mobile phone with good battery power. The market isn't going to naturally demand those things. That's why Henry Ford became a very rich man. Whether... Uh, my carbon footprint is lowered by 8% or 12% is probably not front of mind. I know some people might out, mm. act mm. altruistically mm. in their purchase, choice, purchase choices. Things like fair trade products are an example of that. Mm. But it seems to me that there isn't the weight there to do it, that the electric car only exists really because of government policy to decarbonise. It doesn't exist because there's a yearning from people to not put petrol in their cars. So can we unleash those sort of entrepreneurial forces which were designed to appeal to people's self-interest and what they specifically wanted in their own lives? This seems to me a kind of collective action problem and other regarding problem that might not be able to unleash market forces in that way. Well, that's the challenge, isn't it? And uh, what I'm saying is I think it's quite possible, uh, but you need to add uh, other incentives to purchase as well as the green incentive. As you say, there are some people who would just buy it because they feel so strongly about the green matter. They want to make their contribution. But there are lots of other people who broadly accept the green theory, but they, they want something else. They mm -hmm. certainly don't want to feel they've got a worse or a dearer product. Mm -hmm. um, if it were as good as the other product but greener, then many poor, more people would buy it. But why shouldn't it be cheaper, faster, better? Mm -hmm. Uh, and that is the challenge. And I, you know, I'm still awaiting the iconic car of the electric car revolution, but that we don't yet have the equivalent of what the Mini did to cars in the 1960s or, or the Volkswagen did to, to Beetle did to cars many mm -hmm. years earlier, when mm -hmm. suddenly there was a, a very different looking vehicle that just caught the mood and was affordable. And people said, yes, that's exactly what I want and some rich people said I want that as my second car because it's fun and lots of other people said you know I couldn't afford a car but this really puts it in range for me and it's exactly the kind of thing I need to take my family to the next level and we haven't got to that point yet indeed one of the surprising things I think is that the electric cars look so much like the the, the diesel and petrol cars yep. whose design was based around what you had to fit into them to make them work mm -hmm. and the shape of what you had to fit in them to make them work with an electric motor is very different. Um, indeed, in some ways, it should be easier to mm -hmm. design a really attractive product. So I think we're still awaiting the, the design flair as well as the, the right features on range economy and refueling. But you know, the electric vehicle should, for example, have cheaper fuel uh, mm -hmm. as a great advantage. Um, but somehow that doesn't seem to quite work because if the capital cost is too great then you lose quite a lot of it in the extra money you have to put in to buy the vehicle. I think also uh, governments could help themselves rather more because I think quite a lot of people uh, say to themselves well it's certainly true mile for mile it's a lot cheaper to run an electric car than a diesel car particularly now Putin's war has put the prices up more. Uh, but they're also very conscious that the bulk of the current diesel and petrol price is tax. Sure. And there's no, no equivalent tax on the electric. So yet. they may be anticipating and electric. Worrying yes. that, and governments have said, well, of course, we've got to look at this in due course. Now, I think it would probably be helpful to the development of the market if governments were more open and said, yes, you're absolutely right. We, we can't afford just to lose all this diesel and petrol tax revenue. So this is the basis on which we will tax electric cars so that people can do honest sums.
You, you, co- you cover a range of the other uh, sectors where um, that might be part of the solution to the problem. Um, renewables, hydrogen perhaps, um, uh, lifestyle changes, stop eating meat, start eating vegetables, forgo your foreign holiday and go back to Blackpool and go back to Cornwall. Uh, and again, you don't think any of the breakthroughs here have really been made and in some cases are sort of impossible, right? Foregoing foreign holidays is just a straightforward sacrifice, I guess. You would have to force people to do it or just price them out of the market. You're unlikely to get much thanks from the electorate for doing that, right? I mean, that's one I've done because I actually like my English holidays. So right, I, okay, I do right. have an English holiday. Okay. <laughs> but I like it for its own virtues as well as for the fact that I'm, I'm not adding to all the aviation spirit to go halfway around the world. Mm-hmm. But no, I think people have a, have a wish to travel and we need to solve that problem at the same time. But let, I mean, let's take one of the really big ones, the one which in a way is the easiest to crack and which government started with, and that is electricity generation. Mm-hmm. And I think governments chose this because they thought it's a few big companies, they're regulated already, um, they're very involved in, in government to date, so why can't we nudge them in the right direction? And they've got quite a long way with doing that. They, they have persuaded the industry uh, here and in Europe uh, that it, it needs to move towards much more reliance on particularly wind generation. And uh, the aim was clearly to close down all the coal as the first move and then to move on to the, the gas as the renewables built up. But of course, we, we've had two hits to that in, in the last few months. The first was before the war, uh, when last autumn in the UK, there was surprisingly little wind on various cold days. And, and an industry which thought it could generate 30, 40% of its power from wind was generating 2% mm-hmm. of its power from wind at worst. And so it needed to have a huge amount of backup power and it did have to call up the three remaining coal power stations in order to keep the lights on. And it was very good fortune that they hadn't got round to demolishing those stations because they were on the firm closure list and that was going to be the next thing that's happened. And I think now uh, one of those three coal stations, Ratcliffe on Saw, is, has been given a reprieve because they think they might need it next winter uh, in order to provide that resilience. Yeah, the reliability yeah, yeah. of supply. Yeah. And so I mean, it takes me back, um, which I rarely do, to this, the system for generating power I helped the, the Thatcher government design when we first privatised the industry. And there we always had three aims for the, the power policy. We wanted the power to be affordable. We wanted there to be security supplies that the lights didn't ever go out. And we had environmental objectives as well. In those days it was more to do with cleaning up the chimneys or getting rid of uh, harmful smoky and particulate emissions but Mm -hmm. then it became CO2 emissions uh, as policy evolved. And we managed to fit all those three together and and the the first period of privatisation was incredibly successful because the, the industry decided itself that it would cease building new coal power stations which were only about 32 or 33% fuel efficient. You lost an awful lot of the energy when you burnt the fuel. Uh, And they switched to combined cycle gas, which were 50, 55% fuel efficient. And doing that greatly cut the dirty emissions, which was a huge gain for uh, clean air. It took the price down, um, electricity got cheaper, uh, and they built quite sufficient so that we had a really good margin. So Mm -hmm. that 
uh, a power station could break down or you could have a surge in demand because you had a very cold day with industry going flat out. Uh, and you were completely soundproofed and uh, strong against whatever ever might happen. Now we're struggling a bit on the three, and I think we've got to the point where the concentration on, on the emissions, particularly CO2 emissions, has started to damage the reliability or resilience of the system, and it's messing up the costs. Mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. we're told today <coughs> that um, a modern wind farm operating well would be considerably cheaper than running today's very expensive gas through a power station. That, that may well be true. But it's not as simple as that. Again, there's an accounting issue, isn't yep. there? Um, because if you, just, if you just ran a gas power station, you don't need a, a wind farm to back it up because it will work. Yep. Uh, but if you run a wind farm, you do need a you gas need station to back it up. You need diversity of supply in order so, to get resilience. So you've supply. got to yep. pay to build and maintain your gas station. And of course, paradoxically, you make the gas-fired power that much dearer because it's only being run to top up intermittently yep, yep. instead of being run as base load mm -hmm, with all the mm -hmm, extra efficiencies mm -hmm. and lower costs that brings. So we're still working on how we get to uh, a no-carbon or a very low-carbon electricity system. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we're going to get there until we've got some new technology. And I think it's quite feasible to have new technology by 2050. It's not feasible to have that new technology in place by 2025 or mm -hmm. even by mm -hmm. 2030. But you're going to need storage. And we don't yet know whether it's going to be best uh, to store wind electricity through huge battery farms, um, which could do it, or whether it's best to spend more money on pump storage. Difficult finding all the sites, but you can obviously pump the water up to the top of the mm -hmm. hill when the mm -hmm. wind's blowing and you can drop it back down to generate power when it's not. Uh, or whether you do it through hydrogen, because clearly if you, if you took the, the wind energy when it was available and used that to produce hydrogen uh, in the approved green method, then you can store the hydrogen and you can use hydrogen either to generate electricity or directly to, uh, to power uh, vehicles and, and machines. I mean, we, we now have up and running, I think JCB has done it already, um, heavy plant which can run on green hydrogen fuel uh, with a, a traditional internal combustion engine but using an approved green fuel. So that, right. that may be one of the ways forward. But we don't yet know and yep. the market's got to be allowed to invest and test. And hurdles to overcome on hydrogen as well. It's got to be stored at you know, very low, low temperatures. Temperature. Yeah, yeah. It, it can't be handled. You know, you've got to be careful on safety protocols and all of the rest yeah, of yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it and it, it, you need more of it than the equivalent amount of fossil fuel because of the thermal content. So yes, there are all those things. But there are these solutions. Mm -hmm. Uh, and one day we will know what the answer is, but there needs to be an awful lot of testing, development and investment to see which of these or which combination of them probably is going to be best for doing this. Just before I come back to what the sort of economic landscape should be that would make these uh, entrepreneurial moves the most likely, you mentioned um, in the pri uh, privatisations of the, of the 1980s and you also mentioned in the book that, okay, decarbonisation, we've got to bring it about, but we, we do seem to be 
um, slightly one-eyed about this. I mean, methane, you mentioned, is I think 100 times as powerful as a greenhouse gas. Yep. Uh, I think you also mentioned about electric cars, uh, their particle emissions and sort of generally bad for the environment, even if they're mm. not adding to global warming. Do you, th do you think we need to take a... I mean, if methane is that bad, it's, it's not obvious to me why we're focusing on aviation and cars rather than cow flatulence to solve global warming. We, we seem to have just focused on one item here, both within global warming and climate change, but also within the environment in general, which is more, about more than just CO2 emissions and, and climate change. Well, you're right. And, and I think, in fairness, the green movement are now very focused on farming because uh, on some definitions it's around a quarter of the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you say, um, the cow's methane is particularly dangerous in, in terms of its impact per unit of volume. Uh, but I, I guess what, why it's proving difficult is that that goes into very intimate features of people's lives because people have a very close relationship with their food and it, it's yep. their culture and it's the expression of their identity and it's their family contacts because you've got shared dishes and sure. things that you think represent you. Uh, and so I, I think the, the Greens are obviously showing a certain sensitivity to that and they've got to work away with each of the different communities and, and styles of cooking and say, well... Um, can't you put in more vegetarian options? Mm -hmm. Can't we find more substitutes for meat that have the characteristics of meat that you like without mm -hmm. having the bad characteristics so that we can move to um, many fewer and smaller herds of cattle than we, we currently need? Um, but it's going to take a long time. It, it may take a generation or more to move people on uh, to different ways of eating. And, and I think they've got to have those great chefs promoting these things and they've got to have celebrities promoting these things for people to feel yes that that's fashionable and then it's got to work it's got to taste good so yep. look good and there are all those issues about appearance cover smell texture uh, and above all taste so so let's see if we can work out what would lead to the redwood bottom-up green revolution here rather than the statist top-down uh, supposed revolution which as you say hasn't taken off it's uh, it hasn't got traction at all uh, let me put a proposition to you let's scrap all of the fiddly different taxes we have on fuel or mm. air passenger duty or anything else supposedly to deal with the environment let's as an economist would say internalize the externality of carbon dioxide and have one simple carbon tax which presumably would also be applied in some way to imports it has to be a carbon border tax a well. carbon border tax yeah. as yeah. well and you know I, I know i'm making this sound a lot more simple than it would be but if we just price carbon correctly and if we could find a mechanism of doing that even if we knew it wasn't going to be 100% accurate, that would lead to the right incentives in the market. Could we then not just let the market rip? And I don't, you and I don't really know whether it's electric cars or vegetarianism or hydrogen that will end up being the solution, mm -hmm. but the entrepreneurs will face, if you like, the right prices, and we'll see which technology gets there fastest. Maybe the electric car will actually be a sort of stillborn idea, and lab-grown meat will actually be the thing that, that carries us most of the way. Do you think we could have a kind of one club in our golf set approach, just try and get a carbon tax to internalise the externality, make sure that the real price is actually being faced by consumers and producers, and then just sort of sit back and see what the market provides. But in a way, we've got that already, because uh, certainly in Europe and the UK, we've got a carbon tax. Um, I mean, the market will make the carbon tax what it likes, uh, but it will be heavily influenced by government. And governments do tend to have um, 
sort of stop levels or ceilings which they can impose because I think they're very conscious that if you allow the carbon price to go too high, uh, then it can damage economic output and above all it can damage those particularly on their incomes because of course it's it's very cruel kind of tax uh, because the people who spend the biggest share of their budget on heating fuel mm -hmm. and, and um, running a car are those on lowest incomes and they're the ones in danger of losing the facility to have a car at all if, if this tax goes too high. And the other danger with the market approach is, is that there will be financial and speculative interest in the carbon price which might take it to, mm -hmm. to levels that make it even less agreeable from point of view of the conduct of more general public policy. So again you, you need to have a balanced public policy and we're, we're seeing this above all at the moment aren't we because we've got a cost of living crunch coming up by general agreement. The government agrees as well as the opposition here and elsewhere. And the, the main element in that cost of living crunch is uh, are these soaring gas and oil prices which the market has been imposing for a variety of reasons. And there's a general feeling it's gone too far. Mm -hmm. So if anything, governments now are having to intervene or want to intervene to lower the price of fossil fuels because they know that most of their electors are still burning gas in the home boiler to stay warm and they're still burning petrol and diesel to get to work or get to the shops in their car and it, we, we're not far enough on the transition to be able to say to people well tough luck mm -hmm. um, it serves you right that the price has doubled and you've got to get on with the with the switch. Do you think we do really have a carbon tax at the moment I mean if you are right that things that emit carbon are indeed taxed, mm. but it seems to me a hopelessly complex system to the point of almost being arbitrary. If you were to take air passenger duty, well, that is a tax on the number of passengers on an airplane, which has virtually no impact, actually, on the carbon emitted. Whether you're flying the airplane with one passenger on it or it's chock-a-block with 300 might have some impact, but not very much. Surely the tax should be on the fuel that the airline emits, and whether you have one passenger or 300, neither here nor there, fuel um, for cars, petrol tax, possibly way too high. You might even argue, I've seen it argue, that's higher than a flat carbon tax would be. Then you've got the anomaly that domestic fuel is taxed at 5%. Some people calling it for naught. A simple system would be tax it like VAT. Could we not find one, I mean, those are just some examples, let alone when you start bringing in the picking winners subsidies for various oh. sectors. If we just had one price across the board, scrap all of these fiddly things, scrap the subsidies, the tax will do the, the heavy lifting. Uh, do you not think that we might then sort of begin to start getting that? And in terms of the, if you like, the heavy lifting on those who we're worried won't be able to heat their homes or possibly drive their cars, that should be done by the welfare system, not by the environmental tax system. So if people below a certain threshold need an increase in universal credit or some such like, you do it through that mechanism. Yes, I mean, the danger of that, though, is what about the people who are just above the level that qualifies for the benefits? Because they're not very well off either, <laughs> and we have to think about them. They're usually the people who go to work, pay their taxes, and then discover that the carbon pricing system and the fossil fuel prices can, between them, uh, put a very nasty squeeze on their incomes, and then that becomes naturally a, a matter for political debate and maybe political action. Well, you may be right. I mean, there may be um, a more universal tax which would... Uh, provide a, a fair, fairer playing field. We do, of course, have an, an actual carbon tax on heavy industry mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. power generation at the moment, which is very visible uh, to those who look in our power bills and in the cost of our steel and the cost of our ceramics. And I think it's a big problem for the UK at the moment because I think um, the combination of 
um, high spot market prices for fossil fuel energy and, and our own particular carbon tax is very penal. And that's where this um, imbalance with imports matters a great deal yep. because we're not charging similar tax on the import. And so our industry is under very unfair pressure and I'd want to adjust that pretty quickly. Let me try another line of approach, which I fear might be fantastically over-optimistic, even from a, a kind of liberal free market perspective. But if you were to look at the, the famous environmental Kuznets curve, mm. this you know, suggests as you become more affluent, it's not designed yeah. specifically around climate change, but actually the environment improves with a rider. Mm. I think on forestation, for example, the curve suggests you get deforestation until average incomes are around about, I think it's 6,300 US dollars a year. But once you've crossed that point, you get reforestation. Mm -hmm. yep. Exactly what you're seeing you know, actually in the UK at the moment, reforestation is occurring. The same sort of principle applies to, not this is directly attached to carbon, but endangered species actually wealth tends to, right, in the wealthy areas are reintroducing wolves. It's not a surprise that in the poorest parts of the world you have the most endangered species. Might there just be a case to say, I, I appreciate it might be politically unacceptable, but I'm intellectually curious. Actually, you just need a kind of race for growth. If we could get every country in the world above 6,300 US dollars, preferably far above that, all these things would start to take care of themselves because in economic terms, at least, the environment is a luxury good and people start consuming that and caring about wildlife and pollution only when they know they've got enough on the table to eat and live and scrape by. So just kind of go for growth strategy might, as an ancillary sort of feature of it, sort out carbon and other environmental concerns. I like that idea and because I'm very much in favour of going for growth both in a relatively rich country like Britain and particularly in a poor country where growth is the best way to improve people's lifestyles and chances. Uh, and there's an, an additional strengthening of your case, I think, which is not only do you, you get more interest in the environment as average incomes rise, but you get family size limitation voluntarily mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. as incomes rise. Because mm -hmm. uh, obviously in a very poor society, people think I need to have more children because I need child labor to help me on the mm -hmm. farm. Mm -hmm. And the West is obviously trying to stop all that, but that has been what's happened in some societies. And then I need um, more children to look after me in my old age because there isn't a satisfactory national system of, of support for the elderly and so you tend to get large families thought to be a good thing and then at a certain point uh, when there are many better job opportunities and so forth people say well both of us can go to work but who's going to mind the children so this maybe we don't want to have children mm -hmm. endlessly uh, over a 10 or 15 year period and do what the West does and typically have one or two children. So that, that would reduce the, the impact on the planet because you know, the single biggest cause, I suppose, of more carbon dioxide on the planet is the huge expansion of population. Yep. Because we, we keep on adding billions of extra people over um, not that long a time span um, compared with the pre-industrial world. So that is obviously creating more pressure. <laughs> Let's bring it up to the here and now and the kind of realities of the situation. I'll touch on the Ukraine and what that might mean for our energy policy in a minute, the unfolding events there, which are obviously changing by the minute. But just looking at the domestic agenda, Sir John, you've already referenced the sort of cost of living crisis 
crunch, whatever, which has been talked about by politicians of all stripes for some time. But this time it does feel to me as if this is very, very real. Yeah. Um, yeah. Energy bills are going to go through the roof. Um, not necessarily primarily driven by any decarbonisation plan. But I guess my question for you is, do you think it's possible that the, the great British public are sympathetic, I guess, to the decarbonisation agenda, the Greens agenda in contemplation? But when the rubber hits the road and it starts to be, oh, my God, my energy bills have doubled this year or uh, I'm not going to be able to fill my car with petrol and I have to give up the car, that there is, to put it mildly, um, an impending sense of humour failure about the overall agenda. Do you think that's now beginning to come to the fore for one reason or t'other? Yeah, I think quite a lot of people will be <clears throat> very unhappy about the cost of living squeeze and, and they will be sceptical about what role, if any, net zero policies are played in it. It certainly won't be top of their agenda mm -hmm. to decarbonise. Top of their agenda will be to have affordable fuel to stay warm in the winter and affordable fuel to get to work in the car. So um, that's going to be the priority. And what they are surely saying to government is the swings are too, too big and the hit is too fast that if the government can set out a 20 or 30 year transition on a smooth, sensible path, that's one thing. Uh, but not to have the wild swings we've seen in prices, um, often no particular fault of current incumbent governments, but related to general energy policy of the past. Uh, that is un unacceptable because it means a big cut in some people's living standards, which they didn't sign up for. Mm -hmm. And I'm not signing, signing up for. Uh, Nigel Farage, who sort of, you know, enters and exits the political stage, mm. but often to complain about the, uh, uh, what he would see as an unacceptable drift in the Conservative Party, certainly did that over Brexit. He's now pushing for a full-blown referendum on net zero. He says, I'm paraphrasing a little, that he considers this to be anag uh, analogous to Brexit. All the mainstream parties have signed up for it. There hasn't been a proper public consultation about it. People haven't yet engaged in it. It was rushed through at the fag end of Theresa May's premiership, if I understand, in lightning speed time. But actually, this well, it's begun under Ed Miliband, of course. Yes, that's right. The 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 the, the demands for and, and 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 therefore there should be. Let's have a full blown referendum on this. Do you wish uh, Britain to be committed to carbon net zero by the first January 2050 or not? I mean, again, I'm sure were this ever to get off the blocks, the precise wording would be a matter of great contention. But what's your view on Farage's suggestion? or more generally his assertion, whether there's a referendum or not, that there hasn't really been public consent for what is an extremely expensive revolutionary policy, even if you think it's a necessary one. Well, I, I do think the, the major parties uh, who strongly support this have got to do a much better job of explaining it uh, in an honest way and engaging with the public about how the public will help them. And that's the point of the pamphlet, mm -hmm. saying to the government, it's all very well, you having these targets and expectations, but there have got to be practical ways of implementing it. We've still got 28 years on your, on your analysis of where you want to get to, and I think it's going to be back-end loaded because I think a lot of it requires big new technology, which is there or thereabouts, but hasn't been scaled up and hasn't been commercialised yet. Uh, and you've got to engage with the public about what they would like, what they would accept, and how they can come to perceive green products as cheaper, better, faster. Otherwise, it's going to be extremely hard work. I don't think that the major parties are going to want a referendum on this, and they will probably argue 
but it's not like Brexit. It's not a decision point where the country as a whole has a good argument about it. You project the two different futures and then you make a decision and you, you live with the decision. Uh, this is a process. It, it's a long evolution. And I suspect um, progress and methods to get to net zero will look very different mm -hmm. in 2030 than they do today. And it's not a constitutional um, matter, obviously. No. It's a policy matter rather than uh, a constitutional matter. So what I'm saying to, to governments and opposition parties is trust the people more because you can't do it without them. If a lot of people sign up to Mr Farage's view because they're very hostile to the whole thing, it just makes it so much more difficult to persuade people to buy the products that's actually needed to power the revolution. So please, government, please, opposition, think about what people might want. Try and help industry create green pro products and green policies that we're all proud of and mm -hmm. we like. You know, where is the iconic electric car? Where, where is the new type of heating that isn't gas-fueled or, or not fossil fuel gas-fueled? which we can afford and we would like. Because I, mean, I think the leading politicians who've gone around recommending heat pumps have always stumbled at the first obvious question. They're, they're telling the rest of us we should go and buy a heat pump. And then you say, well, how's yours? Yeah. Well, no, I, I haven't got one yeah. yet, you yeah. know. Yeah. And I sort of might think about it next year. And well, yes, but you may have 18,000 pounds or whatever it is to buy one. But a lot of my constituents don't, don't. have 18,000 pounds just waiting to buy a heat pump. And is there a cheaper one? And if so, can you tell us about it? Can you tell us why it'd be better and what would it do to my bills? That's, that's, yep. You've got to get into this sort of detail, government, if you want to get people responding. Well, let me give you an example that I was very disappointed that didn't go ahead, and maybe you think this could now be revisited, was uh, shale gas. Hmm. I, I, was, uh, I hmm. was, you know, assuming a fracking shale gas revolution was going to sort of happen, because yeah. hmm. the benefits hmm. here, it struck me, were, were just colossal compared to the cost. I'm, I'm not downplaying that I appreciate that some people in some areas would have had their lives disrupted, more noise or whatever, and they should be properly compensated, but the upside seemed to me to be huge. So if government was having the sort of conversation mm. that you, Sir John, are advocating, this seemed to me a fantastic opportunity. We'll create loads of jobs. There's, what, a trillion pounds worth of shale gas. I don't know how much of it's extractable, but mm. no small mm -hmm. amount. It's clean. It will help us with carbonisation and your bills will fall. Uh, there's probably not a direct analogy with the USA, but fracking for shale there has had a measurable impact on mm. lowering US energy bills. Mm. This struck me as being the easiest sell possible and it didn't get off the starting blocks what went wrong well because i think the green movement said this is a fossil fuel and we want to get out of fossil fuels as quickly as possible so don't you dare think of a new way of doing it um, i don't think there's any need to even use the fracking word which is now so pejorative um, i call it reservoir management and there are different ways of making oil and gas flow mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. we've been using for years in the North Sea without anybody worrying very much about it. And of course they need checking out, they need to be safe and, and they, they shouldn't create undue impact. But given that we seem to have uh, shale strata over a very wide area, there's absolutely no need to drill next to somebody's house and, and disrupt their lives. Or as you say, uh, because there would be so much wealth coming out of this if we produced our own gas with the Treasury rolling in extra tax revenues as well, uh, you have quite enough money to buy people out or compensate people out. Mm -hmm. I've asked a difficult question. Well, John, say that they said they've got to drill at the bottom of your garden. 
And I said, well, I, I'd say- There'd be some price I, for which I'd you'd say, say yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, why don't you buy my house for 150% of its market value? And we're both happy because yeah, you've yeah. got a bargain and you can yeah. do it. And if you want to put it in a field two miles down the road behind a hedge and I can't see it, I'm not afraid that, that fussed. No. And I think you can see that these things can be blended into very sensitive environments because uh, our leading onshore oil field used to be which farm may still be and, and that's in Dorset it's very close to Paul Harbour and when I say to people who object to all these things well have you visited the Dorset oil field they, they don't know it exists and they've often been to Paul yeah, yeah. but it's extremely well concealed discreet, and discreet yeah. and the local community have learned to live with it but I, I wouldn't want to force this on any community that didn't want it uh, I think there'd be quite a lot of communities who with suit, suitable protections and environmental um, investigations would want it because it would generate a huge amount of wealth and income and jobs mm -hmm, and all mm -hmm. the rest of it. It would be, be extremely useful. And, and I was very pleased to see that the EU has decided that gas is the transition fuel and that you do have to have a period of using natural gas before you can get on to hydrogen and that that is better than coal. So yep. there is a green reason for it. So I, I applaud that. I think the UK should adopt exactly the, the same approach. And then the logic is for this missing decade before the renewables are in full flow and, and have their storage reliability, uh, we could use much more domestic gas, uh, which would give us a lot more treasury revenue, would give us some better paid jobs, uh, and of course would help ease the squeeze in Europe, which is energy short, uh, where we have pipes and interconnectors, and we could actually help them if we produce more of our own energy, instead of us becoming cruelly dependent on imported energy from a continent that doesn't have enough of it. So do you think it's possible that will be revisited? It seems to completely <coughs> run into the sand. Might circumstances, might there be sort of a you know, force majeure that we actually have to revisit it? I mean, could that come back on in play, do you think, Shale? I think it's going to be difficult because mm -hmm. there is so much strength of feeling um, about what the impact might be. And I think you, you, you've got to diffuse all that and explain uh, what risks, if any, there are in this and also show how you protect people and make sure that it's not foisted on communities that don't want it. But I think there's more chance today of uh, the government recognising the huge problem that Europe has <coughs> through being too dependent on Russian oil and gas and that we will get more of our North Sea oil and gas out because we were gradually closing down the North Sea before we needed to. Sure. Um, commercially as part of this net zero transition and I think it would be good to extend the life of the North Sea this decade uh, to see us over the hump or the the missing energy supply before we have those reliable renewables that we're going to need. And I want to finish on that you just mentioned um, Russia Sir John I mean, an unfolding catastrophe in the Ukraine from a humanitarian perspective and a security perspective but from an energy perspective, what does it teach us? I mean, the German Chancellor's just made plain that they're going to have to keep importing, you know, we can't boycott Russian energy. Uh, where do we go from here? And to what extent do you think we need, if not self-reliance, that seems to me a very uh, old-fashioned strategy, but at least security of supply from trusted outlets, even if they're not domestic outlets? Well, I think we, we can go for self-reliance because I, I think we, we have huge potential for renewables where we've got to add the um, storage capabilities to make them more reliable. And in the meantime, uh, we do have more gas and oil that we could exploit, which would make a useful contribution against our own demand requirements. And we, we should learn from the United States of America because it's very interesting how 
<coughs> President Trump was very strongly attacked for daring to surge the output of oil and gas from America when people thought he should have been reining in. Uh, but President Biden, who was very much of the other view, has taken over, and he's, he's now obviously very relieved that America is completely self-sufficient in gas and mm -hmm. covers most of her oil requirements as well. And he's carrying on with those policies because mm -hmm. he realizes the, the strategic importance. And because most of the, the gas in America is produced and delivered by pipe, it has to be sold in America. They don't have that much capacity to liquefy and export. So they have much lower gas prices. There is no single world price. Sure. America has much lower gas prices for industry and home heating than we do mm -hmm. because it looked after itself and put all that extra capacity in uh, producing more. So you think the UK could be self-reliant? I guess the point I was making would, was on the security of supply element. If, if the market is such that the UK can be a net exporter of energy, fine by me, I suppose I don't mind being a net importer on comparative advantage terms as long as I'm sort of importing from, I don't know, you know Norway, Portugal, Spain, uh, countries that are unlikely to in, <coughs> you know, bring about a European war. How do you think Europe as a continent can, you know, what would it take to get us off Russian reliance given the sorry state of affairs we've got ourselves into? Well, I mean, a huge effort. And I think um, in the short term, it means very bad choices have to be made if you're serious about reducing your dependence on Russian gas. So I, I suspect Germany will not only uh, prolong the life of its nuclear power stations, which we have no problems with anyway, and quite a lot of Greens think it's a perfectly good way of doing it. But I suspect they're going to use more coal for longer than they would like to mm -hmm. because it, it's available and it, it doesn't all come from Russia. Uh, so we've got to look at that because security of supply must be very central because we've got a duty to keep the heating and the lights on for everybody and to keep industry turning. <clears throat> we've got a duty to show the Russians that we, we are sufficiently self-reliant so that their, their threats uh, are not going to work. So, John, it's been a priv privilege having you on the IEA London YouTube channel. Thanks very much uh, for your time. As a reminder, uh, Sir John's book, Build Back Green, uh, we'll put details of how you can get a copy in the show notes below, comes highly commended. If you've enjoyed watching this in conversation on the IEA London YouTube channel, please make sure you hit the thumbs up, the like button. If you're not yet a subscriber to the channel, please hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. That way you'll be kept informed of all upcoming IEA content. And if you do have a few pennies spare, despite your escalating domestic fuel wheels in these present times, and you would consider supporting the IEA's online work, do consider becoming an IEA online patron for just £5 a month. You can help us keep the lights on and free market video footage being put out. So thanks very much for joining us. But most of all, my thanks to Sir John Redwood. Thank you very much indeed. Right.